Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. We don't have a guest on today's episode because this is my last episode of Free Thoughts. So we're making the perhaps a little indulgent move of our last episode being an hour of Trevor and me talking about this show and what we've learned over the eight plus years of doing it. It should be interesting. It's it's eight plus years of doing Free Thoughts and... 20 some plus years of knowing each other uh, and talking about ideas in different way, political ideas, philosophical ideas, Batman versus Daredevil, all the important uh, events of the day. Um, yeah, when we met, I was 20, I believe, because you came to my 21st birthday, but I think yeah. you were 21. Uh, that sounds right, yeah. And it was a science fiction fantasy class featuring a professor who was heavily steeped in what some might today call critical race theory or things along the lines of literary criticism. It wasn't, it wasn't strictly critical race theory because he wasn't a legal scholar, but it was certainly Marxism and postmodernism and psychoanalysis and some odd combination of various left of center ideologies that aren't all actually compatible with each other, but those seem to be incompatibilities that were happily overlooked in the CU Boulder English department. Oh yeah, I mean it's just that what's made Mark so interesting too. It's it's sort of like what makes what makes Slavo Žižek so interesting. You can just listen to him prattle on about some sort of interpretation of the Twilight Zone, and it's probably all BS. But yeah, that class was interesting. They put everyone in a circle. Um, I mean, he it was always in the desks were always in a circle to discuss the texts that we would read, which ranged from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to Neuromancer, and then movies like Cat People, Candyman, the old Candyman, of course, uh, Blade Runner, was Blade Runner, yeah, Alien, so movie nights, I think, Alien, yeah. Uh, but I, uh, Aaron, Aaron had blue hair, I think, when I met him, uh, and we started chatting about various things, and you were. An English major. Yeah. You were very committed to being an English major. Yeah. But I think the most interesting thing about the way you were, the way when I met you was you were a philosopher, but you didn't like philosophy. I suppose that's true. I guess I hadn't put a lot of time into it. Um, No, you'd put no time into it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I don't think I disliked it. I just didn't have a liking for it because I had not spent much of any time with it outside of the philosophers and philosophy-adjacent folks that one reads as an English major, which is mostly continental thinkers. So after after we started debating politics, what, what, what was, what's your recollection and kind of take on that, on that sweep from your standpoint? I mean, I remember some of those early conversations about politics because I was kind of uninformedly left, I suppose. Um, I had a lot of culturally left views. I guess I just accepted leftist views on economics because they came with the territory but hadn't thought about it much. Um, and the the sweep of those conversations, I think it was interesting because we both impacted each other's ideas. Like, so you brought me in the economic liberty direction and you know eventually to libertarianism and i think i moderated some of your more at the time conservative and neocon 
views. They don't have. air the dirty laundry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't talk about, we don't know. That is yeah. true. We can talk. But I mean, I think, I think the, the important part of it is that, you know, I mean, on the one hand, like I think what's made these 430 some odd episodes of free thoughts, like what's made this run successful is that Trevor, you and I came into this with a lot of practice in having conversations with each other. And I, I have thought it many times over the years, like how weird it is that, you know, we would in college, we would get together multiple times a week and just wander the bookstore having these long conversations. And that somehow at Cato, mostly without asking, we just decided to start doing it and no one told us no. Uh, We came up with an excuse to basically keep having those conversations, but like make it for the job. Um, And you know, and so that that practiced conversational back and forth, although that was, I mean, the one thing I think we learned a lot better over the course of these episodes is how to manage a conversation, what the difference is between a conversation meant for the participants and a conversation meant for a listener. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the looking back on those conversations, you're entirely correct that that the I did come from conservatism, but not a not a religious background at all. My parents are not religious; just sort of people influenced by National Review and the sort of non-religious side of William F. Buckley, and then after my or I mean Rush Limbaugh, and then after my dad discovered Hayek and Friedman and people like that. So most of our conversations, in my recollection, were around economics uh, uh, because it, my libertarianism of the time, I would definitely call myself now if I met my past self, something of a neocon, especially in the eras of Afghanistan and the Iraq war and the questions around those. But <clears throat> it was also nothing about my expertise and still, is, still isn't foreign policy. But I didn't have a robust theory of the state. My reading didn't include people like J. Alfred J. Nock or someone like this, or, you know, or Etienne Apathy or, you know, anarchists. It, rec- it included a lot of Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell, which are the books that, that I gave you, I know in particular, Sowell was influential on you too, to get you thinking about the economic side, which I, I guess that's the, an interesting question I'd like to ask you. How, how does that, how do you feel about economics as like an entry drug so to speak, because some libertarians would be very coarse and say, you know, a leftist is someone who doesn't know economics and that basically all they need is just a good, you know, read of Friedman and Thomas Sowell. Um, how do you feel now about that idea? I guess I can see advantages and disadvantages to it being the entrance. And and a lot of this is going to depend on, you know, knowing your audience. Like, I think this is another thing that we've learned over the years of doing this show and talking to a lot of people is that there's a lot of different ways to talk about liberty and there's a lot of different on-ramps and approaches and one size certainly does not fit all um and and so I think a lot of a lot of the frustrations that you and I have had with the way that many libertarians talk about libertarianism is that they they do push this one size fits all rhetorical style and subject matter approach that can turn a lot of people off. But on the topic of using economics as the entry point, the advantage of it 
is that it seems immediately relevant in, say, the way that that a more abstract like philosophy of the nature of the state or rights or whatever um, isn't. It's you know this is we all we all can see economics in action in our lives and the lives of the people around us and in the country and the world, and so you have you have this immediate hook like. I would like it if we were wealthier, you know, um, why aren't we? And then there's also something about understanding economics that seems like that that initial like, oh, I've been taught kind of demand and supply and incentives and like these things seems almost like a like you've put on x-ray specs or something. And you can suddenly just start seeing all of these prior hidden forces at work. And now you have this superpower where you can like, oh, I can see like why, you know, why is it that rent is so high? And you'd be like, well, I can understand how housing like there's these connections that emerge and it can get like very, very exciting. And it can be this really powerful tool because then once you understand it, you can start seeing how all these things that people are doing to try to help aren't actually going to help, or they might help in one area, but create perverse incentives in another or inefficiencies and so on. Uh, and and that can that can lead you to lead you in the direction of like policy analysis in a pro-markets, pro-liberty direction. So that can be really cool. And the concepts, you know, I mean economics is get wildly complicated. But those basic ideas are simple and once you get over the initial hump of them, very intuitive. Like once you kind of adjust your thinking in this direction, then a lot of this becomes fairly intuitive until you get into the really complicated, like your you know expertise level stuff. So that all makes it, I think, a, a powerful entry point. What the disadvantage that I see has to do with the the way that it then frames the broader issues of liberty that i think that there's there can be a tendency particularly among libertarians certainly not all of them but to see economic liberty and markets as basically the only question that matters as you know the only kind of liberty that really matters as the the thing that solves all problems um and as the only the only reasonable or justifiable or rational way to think about society and culture and interactions at the micro and macro level. And, and the, it's not the case that like there are, you know, free market economics is great and but there are counter weighing concerns that might push us to say, let's limit free market economics. That's like, that's the kind of contemporary lefts perspective like not the far left not the marxists and that's it i get frustrated when people on the right think that like basically everyone on the left is a marxist like marxists wish that were the case but it's not at all um yeah go listen to chapo trap house and you get, see what you think the marxists think about the rest of the left yes but but it does like there are other issues besides economic issues and there are other questions and there are moral constraints that exist and rights and human interests that aren't 
merely economic. Um, and if our if our entryway to libertarianism is just through economics, we can have a tendency to not not come to the wrong conclusions on those things, but maybe weight them less than we should or care about them less than we should um, or or just not notice those other issues like just be like, well, if it's you know if the market is free in this situation, our kind of our job is done, we shouldn't care. Um, whatever comes out of it is is like fine, not, you know, it's not in the sense that like if it wasn't fine, we should have the government interact with it, but rather it's fine in the sense that we shouldn't even pass judgment on it. We shouldn't You're talk like about a, like, it's like labor is a good example, maybe. The- labor, um, the organization of firms, the, um, but other things like, you know, racial ethnic inequalities that come out of choices like we as libertarians should recognize those things too as they can be real impediments to autonomy and self-authorship and flourishing and all the things that we think that like markets are good at enabling but and and we don't have to say the state is the answer to these um, and there are solutions to these things that exist within markets, but we should like recognize, we shouldn't just kind of say, if it's not people trading dollars for goods or services, it's not my concern. And I think that can be the issue is economists can become so focused on just economics that they miss these issues. Like you talked about the nature, the fundamental nature of the state, I think is a, a profoundly important thing for not just libertarians, but for basically everyone who is interacts with the state to recognize. And it's not an economic question. It's a question of the nature of authority, the nature of obligation, the nature of power, um, what our relationships to each other can be, how certain institutions or placements in society can or should or shouldn't or can't modify those relationships. Like Those are all profoundly important questions that point in the direction of genuine liberty including economic liberty, but they're not part of just a pure like micro and macroeconomics conversation. It reminds me of episode we had with Elizabeth Anderson. Uh, we've had a couple talking about employer-employee relationships. And it is, it's an interesting point that we should care about those. But for example, the power that an employer holds over an employee, even though everything is seemingly at will. Right? This is a big point made by the left and one that we need to listen to that you, if you are a single mother with three kids working in some sort of factory job and we tell this, let's say you're working at a pretty good one, like an Amazon factory. And we tell this story about, you know, if you don't like it, leave. So that's the power that the employee has over the employer. But it, it's worth, considering that she doesn't really have that level of power unless you know it's sort of like the the idea of of having enough money for the f off money right when you have enough money that you actually people just don't have power over you that they can they and so you can walk away from a job or from whatever um that's worth yeah, considering I 
we're we're good at noticing some of those things in so we make the argument about health insurance all the time like that one of the problems with health insurance with the, the regulations that led to health insurance being tied to employment you know like because the fact that it's it is weird that we get our health insurance through our employers because we don't get our other you know we maybe we get some life insurance through a, as a benefit but like we don't get our auto insurance and our homeowners insurance and all of that through our employers and that exists because of regulations, government interventions, and ongoing tax incentives and so on. And we like we talk a lot about how that ends up making exit from bad employment situations or just the ability to like improve your lot by taking your labor to somewhere where it's you know worth more to an employer. Um, that makes it harder because if you lose your job or you switch jobs, you lose your health insurance. And and we recognize that. And so we say there are lots of reasons why the current health insurance market is screwy and why government has messed it all up. But one of them is this tying it to the jobs. And if they didn't do that, we would people would be able to move around more. Um, but But we don't tend to like in other instances when we're talking about like people in poverty working for like officious bosses at places where their employment is very contingent and they're being controlled in all these ways those kinds of things we kind of be tend to take as like that's just the market working you know like that's just those are voluntary relationships that you were freely entered into just like the employer and the health insurance you know um but those are often the result of a lot of the same kinds of it's not the it's not health insurance regulations, but it's, you know, we talk about the ways that government policy traps people in poverty um, or depresses the economy of certain areas or where bad schools, bad government run schools or tying schools to like local property taxes and so on means that people aren't getting as good an education. And so if you are a lower skill employee where there's more competition for your job. Basically, your bosses can get away with being meaner to you because you have fewer options to leave. Like those are the kinds of things that we we shouldn't be proposing government solutions to them. But if we want to be expanding the movement for liberty, bringing more people in, like these are real concerns in a lot of people's lives that we have good answers to. And it's not just we have good answers. I think we have the right answers to them, you know, and we have the right diagnosis of what's causing a lot of these problems. And if we can talk about those things with empathy, then it can be very powerful for promoting genuine political liberty and genuine economic liberty. But if we just kind of dismiss that as meritocracy or just the effects of the market or whatever in a way that we wouldn't do in say the health insurance thing then it not only means that we're not out there making compelling arguments but that we also look dismissive or callous or cold about like the real problems that are really impacting and hurting a lot of people it seems to me that one of the biggest things libertarians can do to be better at being a libertarian is to care um, in the way that you just described, it's, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing the idea, the popular idea that libertarians are uncaring, uh, as a matter of course, but <laughs> we've been doing this for a while and I can say that there are many, many people in the professional libertarian world 
who who are maybe less empathetic. Uh, and maybe one reason they are less empathetic is because they take a big picture view of it. Not that they're mean to their their you know friends and family, and they don't care about their their you know the plight of what their friends and family are doing or their or other people in their circle. It's that when you talk about these things that you mentioned, what about a worker you know with the inability to you know change jobs or lack of mobility? They view it in a very big picture systemic sense and say, well, you know that's just a problem of growth in the local economy. It's like yes, that problem of growth in the local economy that is what it is. But right now, like right now, that guy in a 10,000-person town in southern Ohio that used to have a factory that no longer has a factory, right now that guy has a huge problem. And it would be great to revitalize the economy. And we can do it. We know how to do it. I mean, we we – We've seen what, you know, even Detroit is coming back, Aaron's hometown. Like we've seen, you know, places like Cleveland or Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a is a wonderful place. But it takes time. It it the 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 wheels of the market and the wheels of what Deirdre McCloskey calls trade tested betterment, they take time. And in that time, that person losing that factory job can be severely hurt. And that might be one reason, and I think we're on the same page on this, that as for me, the welfare state uh, that focuses on the right things and not on the wrong things uh, is one of my least complaints about the state. Now, we could, you and I could both go on about what's really wrong with the welfare state, especially as a product of state pathology and all of this stuff. But I think that there is something too, and I know you agree with me because we've talked about it a lot. You know the Randian critique, and you know I I don't like Rand, and neither does Aaron. Uh, I think there's value in Rand. I think I know many people who who the the general message of um, live your life, be productive, and stop apologizing for it is not damaging, but it can lead people to criticize the quote-unquote non-productive without taking a bigger picture of what is going on to make these people be productive or non-productive, so to putting that in quote-unquote, because there's a lot of ways to be productive uh, and reducing stuff to that economic life. So so yeah, so so the well, I think you're with me on the, you know, the welfare issue. You asked me what's my most non-libertarian opinion, and it's probably the fact that I'm okay with some sort of welfare state, but I'm also radical enough to imagine many, many communal ways to g- that we could have, we could get around the welfare state, but those are simply not available to us now because the state has crowded it out. So I'm not the most against it. But yes, we could be a lot better at talking about and caring for other people's plights due to their economic circumstances. Yeah, and I think I think related to that is recognizing that the goal is not for an individual person, like what their liberty matters a lot and liberty is a good in and of itself you know like but it's also creates other goods and the chief one that it can create is what i'll call self authorship that like you know the the best thing that you can achieve in your life is like what you want to achieve with your life and that can vary wildly from person to person and one of the issues I think with a purely economic way of thinking about this stuff, you mentioned productivity, is to see, say, productivity as only expressed in like dollar income 
right? And so the person who is producing more in dollars is more productive. Um, the person who is producing less is less productive. And this turns into somewhat of a meritocracy thing where like the basically the reason that some people are wealthy and other people are poor is that the people who are wealthy were more willing to work hard um, or had longer time horizons than the person who is poor. And that's the kind of talk that I think really gets a lot of libertarians and free market people into trouble with people who would be sympathetic to our message because it's wrong in first the regard that that person might be working extraordinarily hard. The poor, the poor person might be working extraordinarily hard. In fact, much harder than maybe the wealthy person is, but through a whole set of circumstances, you know, where they were born, what skills their parents had when they were growing up, um, the environment, just luck. Luck plays a huge role in a lot of this stuff, and I think it's downplayed a fair amount. Um, they are working their fingers to the bone at three low-paying jobs and don't have an opportunity to start a business, you know, or whatever. Um, and and that, that, like, the lack of recognition of that, I think, makes it a harder sell. Again, not to say, not to justify, like, a larger welfare state, not to justify more government intervention, but to to say, like, this is, if you tell people, if you just tell people with a straight face that, say hard work or time horizons is the main is the only or the main reason that some people are rich and other people are poor most people are going to like recognize that that's not true they're going to look around and be like i you know i i saw my immigrant grandparents came over here with nothing and built a bigger better life for themselves but were never rich and they worked like you know they worked like crazy um, so clearly that can't be true. And they're right. And I think part of it is there's a using productivity in like a technical economic sense versus the way that most people use the term. Um, but then there's also this, this self-authorship thing that there is nothing wrong with someone choosing not to become rich, not to be successful in that sense in the marketplace. You know, like you can say... My dream is to, you know, I, I want to teach music lessons to kids because I get a lot of pleasure out of that. And I want to serve people. I want to be a barista because I really enjoy interacting with people in that environment. And I want to live in like a small but comfortable apartment and hang out with friends a lot. And that's my dream. And that dream seems perfectly rational to me. If you can achieve it, then you've been wildly successful if that's your dream. But you're not you're not making a lot of money, you know. Um, and we should we should celebrate that because the goal I think should be to celebrate the self-authorship that liberty brings and to recognize that the value in liberty is is not necessarily that then everyone can become rich, although the higher, you know, more abundance. We all makes almost it better. all rich. Almost all yeah. of us are are rich in an international sense. Yes. Yeah, but but that like the real goal is to maximize self authorship. Like that's you know your point. Remind me of of a thing I wrote years ago for libertarianism.org that discussed the criticisms that came onto one of the Occupy Wall Street protesters or someone in the similar sphere 
who was complaining about the fact that he got a master's of fine arts and puppeteering, I believe is what he had. And he had, you know, X amount of dollars in debt, maybe $100,000 or something. And he couldn't find a job. And so there were a bunch of people dunking on this person saying, see, he just wasted his life and he, he, he decided to pursue a worthless degree and we should condemn him for this because he didn't go into finance or something. And of course, that's exactly the wrong thing that we should be doing. Uh, we should be praising and, and advocating for a world where people who are artistic and have other desires rather than just earning money uh, have the ability to find some sort of living because there's so much leisure time in society and quote unquote excess wealth uh, that you can now do this. And that, of course, is the thing that the left often misses is that they don't understand how much the things they like are a result of economic growth. Uh, but then the, the, the economically centered libertarians or conservatives tend to focus too much on top tax rates and regulations on businesses and things like this that do really matter and have long-term effects, uh, but don't really resonate with Mr. MFA and puppeteering, uh, which is maybe one reason he's not listening to us. I mean, we actually do have the prescriptions for A, why he doesn't need to have that much college debt, uh, and B, how we can create a society where there are even more puppeteers and other types of, of weird endeavors. And I think that that's, as I agree, it's self-authorship. Um, interested in your in your own personal journey of sort of coming from where we discussed when we first met, uh, sort of a know-nothing lefty punk rocky dude who hadn't examined this stuff to a Buddhist uh, philosopher who's thinking about liberty in a, a different way. Um, I don't know if you could describe that progression in terms of like, especially when it comes to Eastern philosophy of what what kind of brought you along that path and how it ties in with your libertarianism. Yeah, I think it's a it's a confluence of a lot of things. And I think that the the like take a few steps back way to describe it is a shift in my I guess call it emphasis in how I talk about and how I think about the the cause of liberty from like an economic and policy one, which remains, as you said, like extraordinarily important and in, you know, increasing wealth is the best way to help in like basically every metric that matters to anyone. Um, but I, my emphasis has shifted more to these being questions about how we should treat each other. Like just as people in this world all trying to figure this thing out and achieve success as we define it, what is the right way for us to be treating each other and what are the ways that corrode relationships um, and undermine our ability to live well together? And if that's the focus, so in more of like an ethical stance – you know, like what is what does it mean to live well and what are the skills and behaviors and beliefs conducive to living well and living well with others, um, then that's where 
the like the nature of the state and the nature of politics comes very much into play because setting aside the all of the the benefits of um of free markets and liberty that it unleashes innovation and technological growth and increased wealth and tends to create more peace and all of that like those are all very good we should push for them but even setting all of those aside like the nature of the state is to be violent towards each other um and it is to say rather than trying to get you to do what i want through persuasion or market incentives like i could pay you to do what i want which just means me giving you something of value for you to do something for me that i value um i say hey you over there will you beat this guy up or threaten to beat him up in order to get him to do what i want like that is just the inescapable nature of the tool that we call politics and the state that is the person the the organization that exercises the use of that tool um, and that that relationship that replacing exchange and persuasion and empathy and tolerance with violence is is so destructive and so kind of inhuman in you know like an aspirational you know we should aspire to not behaving that way um that i think it's it for me it has become just the core of the entire liberal libertarian pro liberty project is to say we should treat each other as human beings we should treat each other with respect and empathy and we should organize our society around doing precisely that and the move into eastern philosophy came from first a move into ancient greek and virtue theories which are you know like a lot of libertarians are either these consequentialists or the utilitarians they're the, the economist people like we can decide what's right to do or wrong by just doing some math you know adding things up totaling our accounts and seeing where we come out that's like a very economics way of thinking about things or there's the the deontologist the very rules based like i want to just have a set of rules to follow and that's like the we have rights and if you violate a right then you've done something wrong and if you if you haven't violated a right then whatever you've done is fine like that kind of thinking so very black and white um and virtue says like no we should be more concerned with like the kind of person you are your traits of character and then your actions will flow from that and what are the actions that are best representative of like positive traits of character or negative traits of character and so on because try to be good people and then good people will do the right things and that was like the greek and then the move into eastern was partially by accident just reading randomly but then i think i think in retrospect there is the eastern philosophy particularly buddhist philosophy is taking a lot of those same insights about virtue and marrying them to a really strong commitment to nonviolence and non-harm 
both to ourselves and others. Like that's the core of Buddhism is that we suffer because we have beliefs and values and engage in actions that do harm or violence to ourselves and to others. And we can bring about real happiness in our own lives and in the world by stepping away from those harmful, violent interactions and activities and thoughts and so on. Um, and and that to me seemed like that's just kind of the culmination of this, this journey that I've had from kind of the economics and the policy way of thinking to the virtue way of thinking and then the recognition of like kind of virtuous nonviolence as the ultimate thing, which then has these really deep repercussions for the state and politics, given that their fundamental nature is is violence. I have to ask you the question. This is this is this was not intended me interviewing Aaron, but I think I the question that I want people to hear hear you answer uh, uh, before I agree with you. What does the virtuous, nonviolent person do, or where does that? What commends that viewpoint in Mad Max's universe? Uh, because it seems to me that you should, if you if you have a true moral philosophy, it should be equally applicable in Mad Max's universe versus you know twenty first century America or Western world. But it's hard to say that it is equally applicable. That that you can you can be immoral and you can you can practice violence to some degree in Mad Max's universe in a way that you shouldn't hear. I mean, on the one hand, you can talk about like defensive uses, right? Or or you can say that you should strive to be non-harmful, but there are certain times when acting in a way that will harm one will like, you know, is the only way to prevent. And that that can get, you know, prevent greater harm. And that can get into like all sorts of Star Trek-y type problems that, you know, um, but but there can be that that level of like in really dire circumstances um you sometimes have to take actions that aren't right that aren't good that aren't virtuous in order to say survive or protect the people you love or whatever they don't i don't think they become virtuous in those situations so i don't think that it's like in a mad max world all of those things people are doing that we wouldn't do here are virtuous activities there that wouldn't be here. I think there's still unvirtuous activities. It's just that we are like more willing to overlook them or more willing to bite the bullet on them or more willing to say, fine, I'm not going to live up to the ideal standards if the alternative isn't living at all. Um, but I'm wary of basically judging moral standards against those kinds of worlds because I think that in almost every instance where someone believes that they are in that mad Max, like that that we're in a situation where the mad max behavior is justified it's not you know like it tends to be less a there is a line somewhere that we have to deal with when we cross it and more an a way to rationalize vicious behavior in the here and now like say post 9-11 torturing of terrorists or yes something. exactly or the way that i, I put um, terrorists in scare quotes there by the way <laughs> the the way that a lot of like kind of conservative pro-cop people talk about like beating up suspects and you know like 
that this is what's needed to protect these cops who are out on the beat. Like, it's like, it's not because there are lots of other police officers who don't behave that way in other countries and places that are just, you know, like it's, so it ends up being an excuse. And, and so I think that we should aim for the virtuous behavior all of the time. And there may be times when there are things that outweigh it, but most of us have never been in those. Most of us never will be in those. And and one of the issues is that I think that the state and politics tricks us into believing we're in those far more often than we are. Like that these people are so bad that we have to use the violence of the state to stop them. Um, even when their badness is simply they're like choosing to live differently than us. Yeah, the collectivism of it is wild. That that That's one thing I've learned over the years. You brought up my foreign policy transgressions in the past. Um, the collectivism of the whole thing of saying of how, what you just said, how the state allows us to collectivize. People don't talk about this enough. By collectivizing us into something like the United States of America, we can view things as collective harms that are not really harms. We can say, so we, we can have people, you know, saying ISIS wants to destroy America back when ISIS was a thing or Al Qaeda or the Taliban. Uh, but like, it's a very abstract collectivist notion fighting against another very abstract collectivist notion about whether or not, are you actually in danger from ISIS or are you actually in danger? I mean, and granted, there are you know things like 9-11 that happens that means that there's some small chance that you could end up in a terrorist situation. But I advise probably not living your life by such small chances. And that's the collectivism of that is that we did this, they did this to us we can now go against them with brute force you know you know it's just the tragedy of something like the iraq war where the the con convincing ourselves or people convincing americans that somehow saddam and iraq wanted to attack america meant that we killed well, let's say conservatively 200,000 iraqis of which most americans don't really give a crap about because they're iraqis because they're on the other side of a line uh and then say we feel safer or something because of it. It was now I realize and I'm reading Spencer Ackerman Ackerman's book right now. So for the next episode of Free Thoughts, but uh I realize just how much of a tragedy that entire situation was and how much it depended upon the operations and collectivism of the state. And in this sense, you know, the right the right wing loves to use the word collectivists all the time to describe the left. But describing if you're talking about militarism and nation nationalism and the collectivism of that, which of course there are many people now who like the virtues of nationalism type people who explicitly embrace it, uh, just put us all into the worst moral situations, I mean, the, the become worse people, as we've talked about over and over again, do horrible things to people that would never be imagined if you could just like sit down and have a beer with an average Iraqi, which most people could do before we murdered 200,000 of them. It's deeply sad. I, I think, and this is something, you know, you live for 13 years in Washington, D.C., and you look at the way that people talk about policy and the way they talk about our country's role in the world and whatnot like i think the most damaging idea in the world right now is nationalism um, it just destroys humanity and empathy and understanding 
and willingness to not even just help other people, but to live alongside them. Um, and it's it is all just based on this fantasy of there's these things called nations that somehow make us fundamentally different from each other, that others, everyone else but the people who live within, you know, within this loop drawn on the earth, you know, that we call a particular country, um, it's it's unbelievably destructive and and leads to so much just basic immorality and hatred and accomplishes very little um, because I think it gives people people like to build their identity around it, but it's like a kind of false and cheap identity based on like not really like you should build your identity around your accomplishments and your interests and your relationships and your passions, not around just like where you happen to be born. Um, I mean, where you happen to be born has can have a tremendous influence on those passions and relationships and, you know, because those are the people you're around and those are the, that's the culture you were in and all of that, that influences you. But like the nation shouldn't be the kind of fulcrum of identity um, because it doesn't, it doesn't give you much and it destroys a lot. Um, and that usually ends up, it ends up poorly when it ends up poorly. I mean, there are many people who subjectively enjoy, I don't know, the pledge of allegiance at, or I mean the national anthem at sporting events. I find it deeply creepy. Um, as do most people, I brought some German friends of mine to their first American sporting event one time and they were kind of taken aback because like that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. And it, that kind of patriotism reeks of Nazism if you grew up in Germany. Um, but there are people who generally enjoy that and it can be harmless. You know, it's like being a sports fan and really being happy when your team wins. It's all kind of silly. It, you know, even as a diehard Oklahoma Sooners fan, I deeply recognize how silly it is that my emotions can ebb and flow based on whether these people wearing these shirts win or lose. But at least it's a little, it's a little harmless, right? Until, you know, Philadelphia fans start punching horses and waxing down uh, <laughs> where they have to wax down the, the, the traffic lights. But, you know, so there's a good side, but the, but the, the bad sides of nationalism, the collectivism of nationalism, whether it's, you know, world, world wars and, and genocide, or even just immigration restrictions, which are deeply rooted in nationalism and are, you know, as our colleague Alex Narasta said, or all the, the states refusing, like, we don't want Afghan Oh yeah, refugees. Even the ones, even the ones, even the ones that we helped out, that helped us out. We don't want yeah. them here. We don't want them here. It's hard to figure us. out any other way that that that. And I'm not, I'm not saying racism even because because you know it's not all racism. Race definitely pl plays a role. But you know, go to all the different nations of Europe, and by that I do not necessarily mean countries because at different times they've been countries or not. Like say the Serbians, who were once part of Yugoslavia and are now their own country you know but they're i mean the, the serbians the croats the bosnia herzegovinians like they're they're all white i mean you know well it becomes a silly question at some point in terms of how we define that but you know there are some different religions going on but you know it's not all racism it's just the disease of that perverse collective nationalism but okay so we we have a few minutes left um i don't know if you want to make any comments on Favorite episodes, favorite moments, um, 
we didn't really plan this uh, intentionally. No. Uh, so maybe Aaron wants to punt on that uh, or part of I mean, the thoughts. I mean, I think or... I'll just, I think the value, like I certainly hope that our listeners over the years have gotten value out of this show and that, you know, and I've heard from people who have listened to all of the episodes, which is more than I've listened to. Um, and, you know, like, and that's, they, they must be getting something out of it. That's actually true because, because if I do an episode solo, Aaron's pretty much guaranteed to not have listened to it. Uh, and so he definitely has not listened to every free thought. I have not listened I think to I've every... listened to every episode. I think I have, because I listen to every episode I have not been a part of. So, okay. so. Uh, yeah. So like that has been, you know, I think that we have created value, I think is, is clear and is something that, you know, I can take with me and makes me very happy. Um, but this has, uh, I mean, aside from getting somehow getting to spend an hour a week, having a converse, having conversations with like my really good friend and a ton of smart people and having it be part of my job, which is still crazy, but you know, like awesome. Um, I, I think for me, like the, really getting a sense of that diversity and richness of thought that's out there from talking with so many people, a lot of them libertarians, but a lot of them not, from tons of different perspectives, lots of college professors, lots of scholars, but also people who aren't and have, you know, wildly different lives than, you know, like we in the kind of wonky Washington tend to have. Um and seeing that diversity and seeing the ways that you can have really fruitful conversations across intellectual, ideological, cultural divides, and that you can learn a ton from, you know, the, the people that we've had on who raise ideas that even if at the end, you know, I'm not persuaded, like I read their book, I wasn't persuaded. I have had the hour of conversation where I got to ask my pointed questions. I wasn't persuaded, but I learned a lot, like new ways to think about things, new perspectives to take, or even just new approaches to expressing my own ideas and opinions or, or ways to, you know, or things that I have to be aware of when I'm expressing them, like counters to them that I need to have an answer to. Like that, I think, has been just incredible. The the range of people that we have talked with on this show and a lot of them who I had no idea before we set up the episode kind of about their work and then was blown away by it. Or people who, you know, like for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to get to talk to and I did and they were every bit as interesting as I hoped. Um, and and what I'm, you know, as far as that value for our listeners, it would be genuinely lovely if they could take that kind of that lesson away from this show that, you know, you you get a lot from talking with people who might not be in your wheelhouse, you know, who, who might have ideas that are different from yours or aren't exactly the stuff that you are interested in at the time. Um, and, and so to just like 
let yourself range widely. Um, don't close off potential conversations. Don't cl close off potential avenues of thought because they come from people who aren't part of your tribe or they're, ex they're often expressed in ways that you don't particularly like um, or they make you a bit uncomfortable. Like run with all of those to the extent that you have, you know, time and opportunity because you'll benefit, you know, like in a very rich way from that. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's the kind of treasure I take away from the time that you and I, Trevor, and our guests have talked over the years is, is just the richness of all of it. And it's it's been a real honor to get to share that with with listeners and to hear from listeners who have loved what we've done and have you know have learned from it um yeah it's been yeah. it's been wonderful here here uh doing this show for we should have actually counted the episodes 430 odd episodes <laughs> uh has been one of the immense pleasures of my life. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Trevor. And thank you to everyone who's listened to me and my long-winded questions for as long as you have. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.